Good morning. Everybody good? Everybody awake? All right. Jesus is, is, is here. He is in this place. And um, um, if you would like to look at some message notes, we have those available to you. Mynewbridge.church. You can go online, mynewbridge.church. Scroll down a little bit, and it says message notes, and you can click on those and follow along if we use them. That's the question, right? If we use them. If not, they are, they are there for your, for, your, um, for your benefit. Let's just pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you this morning for your goodness and your, and, your, and your grace. Father, what we don't need is another sermon. We don't need another whole batch of information. But we just need you, God. We need the word of the Lord. We need your word. Your words are spirit and they are life. Lord, we need your word. We know the letter kills, but the spirit brings life. And Lord, to, the, to whatever degree it is possible this morning that you would take your servant right here, God, and help me to deliver that which you want to say to all of us in this place, to bring us into an ever-increasing encounter with your perfect love that casts out all fear, that anchors us in great courage and confidence of who we are as sons and daughters of the Most High. Lord, I pray that we would hear what you're saying in a special and a unique way. We ask these things, Lord, in Jesus' great name. Amen. So I want to share with you around a thought, simply this, destination, Jesus. And that's not just a clever title, which I think it's kind of a clever title, but it's not just a clever title, it's actually something very special um, to, to me. And the Lord's been stirring my own individual heart now for some time as it, as it relates to what does it really mean to walk with Jesus. Now, I'm going to offer you something that, um, that I, I, I can't necessarily substantiate, but something that, in my opinion, that I believe to be true about many of us who are Christ followers and seek to run hard after Jesus. I believe that many of us in our individual walks have a bit of a mixture in our heart and in our soul. It's a mixture of experience with the Lord and religion. I believe we have a mixture of that. And as we walk with Him, the Lord wants to begin getting rid of religion and bring us into a more full expression and experience in who He is. Now, what that means is for every single one of us, there's room for growth, isn't there? There's room for growth to begin to come into greater revelation of who the person of Jesus Christ really is. And He's not a huge fan of Religion. He wants to set us free of religion to bring us into a greater fullness of Him. It was at the beginning of this year, December, end of the year, I began praying and just asking the Lord, I said, Lord, I really um, um, need to encounter you. I, 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 this, this hunger inside of me began to increase. And, and I remember it was the 1st of January, about six months ago, I, was, I had gone, in, gone into the prayer room and I had, and I had one agenda on my mind. I was asking the Lord, I said, Lord, I need you to show me what's wrong with me. Right? I was coming to the Lord, and I could have asked my wife. She could have told me much quicker, probably. But I needed to hear from the Lord. You know, Lord, what is wrong with me? I knew, I felt like there was just something in the way. And, and I, I remember the moment, I remember the spot in the prayer room I was going to go to. I was going to kneel down and pray. And it's just a special place. If you haven't been in the prayer room, I just encourage you to plug. Go, go spend some time with the Lord there. And I, I remember going to a, a, a spot on the floor, and I began to pray and said, Lord, I need two things. I just need two things. Lord, 
I need you to show me what's wrong with me, and I just need to cry. I need to cry. Sometimes we can go too long without crying. And I feel like I've been a little too long without crying. I said, Lord, that's just kind of what I'm asking for. Show me what's wrong, and Lord, I need to cry. And that was about 10 a.m., and I began to pray. And as we learn to pray, sometimes you have to pray until you pray. Sometimes you got to pray until you pray. You begin to press in, and you begin to pray and pray. And it was, and it was at 2 p.m., about 2 p.m., the Lord began to encounter me, and, and I would say in a, in a very significant and dramatic way, and he began to reveal to me what was wrong with me. And, it, and this will kind of tie back into what I believe the Lord has for us today. He said, son, you are addicted to accomplishment. That's what he said. Very clear. You are addicted to accomplishment. Now, that may not sound like much to you, but it really struck at the very heart of, of a lot of my inner wiring. Because I'm, I'm the guy that was the perfectionist, kind of OCD, you know, had to have the 4.0, had to have the magna cum laude, had to have this, had to have that. Not so much to get the accolades of man, but this thing inside of me that needed that affirmation that was all based on performance and accomplishment. The Lord says, son, you are addicted to accomplishment. And the moment he said that, it exposed an internal motivation that, ad, 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 that um, adhered itself to my identity. And the Lord said, I want to I deal with that. And it was scary. I began to you know, cry and weep and repent. The nearest person to me was Stephen Hugh, and I ran and grabbed him. I said, please pray with me right now. Pray with me right now that I can, that I can be free of this and repent of this and it can be free of my, of my life. We prayed, and then that would begin about a 24-hour period of time where the Lord would supernaturally just encounter me and speak to my heart and begin to refresh me. And one of the things that he revealed in me at that moment says, son, see, when you're, when you're addicted to accomplishment, when you're addicted to achievement, you're always looking to what's next for some sense of affirmation and achievement. It's like never enough, is it? I need this, or, or I need that. I need, I need this particular degree. I need this job. I need this raise. I need this next car. I need this next house. I need this next wife. I need this next husband. I mean, literally, the end could be very long of a, of a list. We're always after something. And, and in this time of prayer, the Lord just encountered me, and he, and he spoke into my heart and said, Son, I'm the destination. I'm the destination. Jesus in Scripture, we find this primarily in the book of John, begins to list all these I am statements. Who's familiar with the I am statements in, in Scripture? Jesus begins to declare, I am all these things. It's, it's I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the vine. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And this was a, a centerpiece, and I believe what the Lord was showing me. This verse, John 14, 6, this is what Jesus says. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Who's ever heard that verse before? Who knows that? Perhaps you've even memorized that verse if you've been around church very long. It's one of the kind of the common passages that you might learn. But so often when we read this, we begin to interpret the word way as rules and regulations and requirements, these things that we need to do to be a Christian. And this can lead to a warped understanding of what it really means to be a Christ follower. Now, a simple self 
diagnosis, you can look at yourself and ask this question. And I've asked Christians this question before and myself that how do you know you're a Christian? How do you know you're a Christian? And more oftentimes than not, people will immediately begin to respond and they begin to answer like this. Well, I, you know, I, I don't smoke, I don't drink, I don't chew, I don't go with girls that do. And, and they begin to define their Christian life by a list of things that they don't do. And that becomes a primary identifier as a Christian. Now, let me ask you a question. What kind of testimony is that in the world that we live in that we identify ourselves as a Christ follower by the things we don't do? Is that an accurate representation of what it means to be a lover of Jesus and a Christ follower in this age? I don't think so. Now, there certainly are some things that we're not supposed to do, but that's not the primary thing that we are called to. In essence, Jesus is communicating to us. He said, I am not rules. I am not regulations. I am not requirements. I am actually the way. I am actually the way. So, I learned to define the noun as a person, place, or thing. Anybody remember, remember kind of grammar? Person, place, or thing. So we see the word way, and our mind typically goes maybe to a place or a thing. So where do I have to go and what I have to do? But in this instance, Jesus is saying, I am the noun. I am the person. I am the proper noun, right? I am the person. I am actually the way. Do you see the difference? It sounds like a little nuance, but it is a significant nuance as we begin to frame ourselves and understand what it means to encounter the person of Jesus. Because we're not seeking after rules and regulations and requirements. We're going after a real relationship with a real person. Jesus is saying, I'm going to redefine all these nouns for you, and you're coming to me, not a place or a thing or a list, but to a real person. Now, in our journey, we begin to mix up religion and relationship, and it becomes a mixture in our own heart, in our own mind, in our pursuit of Him. And one of the great ministries of the Holy Spirit is to begin to deliver us from this and transform us by the renewing of our mind as we get greater revelation of who He is and the manner and the level in which Jesus desires to encounter us. Jesus is declaring He is real relationship. He is the real relationship. He's not dependent or codependent on anything. Now, in the higher ranks of theological study, we call this his aseity, his aseity. It's one of the non-communicable attributes of Jesus. What does aseity mean? It's that God is the uncaused cause. He is the uncreated creator. In other words, he's not dependent upon anything or anyone to sustain himself. He is the pre-existing condition, right? He is pre-existing and he will always exist, not dependent upon anything else. It's one of his non-communicable attributes. We are made in the likeness of God, but there are some aspects of divinity that we don't share because we don't have a sanity. We, are, we can't sustain ourselves. We are a needy people. Just go a few days without eating or drinking. You're going to find out you need to do some things. Not so with God, not so with Jesus. It looks like this in Isaiah 46 that God says, For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. This is the Jesus whom we serve. And Scripture tells us that He, Jesus, is the exact representation of God sustaining what? All things by His powerful Word. 
So when we come to this Jesus who is inviting us into relationship, it's not because he needs us, it's because he desires us and wants us. He's not looking for a codependent relationship that God has these needs and he needs us, because he really doesn't need us. He is self-sustaining, self-existent in every way, and the primary attribute in which God revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush, he says, I am Yahweh, I am that I am. And I need anything else. This is who we are approaching in this beautiful person of God and Jesus. Now, as we are walking, and I hope the reason that you come to church at 9 a.m. on a Sunday morning is because everyone is here because we're pursuing this man, right? We're pursuing Jesus. I hope you didn't come to see me, right? We came to see him. That's why we're here. And as we're moving through the journey of life, we're experiencing this ever-increasing encounter with Jesus to bring us more fully into this revelation which will ultimately culminate one day when we get our glorified bodies and we see him face to face and he sees us face to face. And oh, what a beautiful day that will be. As the song said, soon and very soon, I'm going to see the king, right? Oh, I want to see him look upon his face there to sing forever of his amazing grace. That's going to be our testimony in the age to come. And we're experiencing an ever increasing awareness of what the father is doing in us. Now, for me personally, it looked like this. I've been pretty much actively following Jesus The bulk of my life from 13 years old, been following Jesus, and I'm kind of learning something that I don't know anything. I'm learning that I don't know. And and the the cool thing about following Jesus is this, that he is the God who we will know, but he is the God who we will never know. Because he is infinite, isn't he? We will know him, yet we will never know him. Every one thing we discover in Revelation truth begats four or five other questions that we need answers to. And the more we learn, the more we don't know begins to grow exponentially. Because he has no lid, he has no basement, he has no walls around him. He is infinite. That's why eternity is going to be so much fun. Because we're going to be encountering God more and more and more, ever increasingly, as he begins to invite us into this place. Now, you read the book of James, and, and, you, and you begin to discover, so we're on the journey of discovering this Jesus. And he's so exciting, he's never old, he's never dull. But life introduces to us a number of challenges. And James talks about these challenges in James chapter 1 that we face what? Trials, we face some tests, and we face tribulations. These are the three things going on, trials and tests and temptations. We go through these things in life. That's part of the journey that we have. Whoever goes through trials? Anybody in a trial right now? We go through trials. It's, it's a natural part of living on a planet. Jesus said you're going to have trials and tribulations. It rains on the righteous and the unrighteous. Sometimes you get up in the morning and the car doesn't crank. Sometimes you get a flat tire. Sometimes things don't go your way and difficulty is introduced into your life. That's part of the state of things right now. That's why creation is groaning for Jesus to return. We sang earlier the the antiphonal response there. Yes, Lord, we think, we see things are broken. We see it's messed up, but Lord, soon we're going to see you. We believe you're going to come and fix everything one day. We long with expectation. He's going to come and resolve that. But in the meantime, we're facing trials. That's the difficulty we all go through. It rains on the righteous and the unrighteous. But not only trials, we go through tests. Sometimes the Lord designs for us tests. What are the purpose of tests? It doesn't tell God anything. It reveals you to yourself. When you go through a test, you're going to learn something about yourself that you didn't know. And sometimes trials can actually be tests at times to find out who you are and what's going on inside your own heart to see how you're doing, to show the glory that's inside you that's exposed through tests. And then, of course, there are temptations that come your way. God does not tempt anyone. 
but the fallen world we live in. We have an enemy that does tempt us, and we have the flesh that we're having to deal with. But over the course of the journey, we're all going through trials, all going through tests, all going through an assortment of temptations. And I have found that Jesus sometimes along the way will walk with us and walk with us. And this is what he did for me six months ago. He just kind of, I believe he just kind of stopped and he like stepped in front of me and said, guess what? I'm the destination. And it, it literally stopped me in my tracks. Because remember, I had an, uh, and had addictive to, I had an addiction to achievement. So listen, there's like nothing left to achieve. You know me. Nothing left to do. You've like, you have, you have, you have already arrived at where you're supposed to be. But that doesn't mean there's not things left to do, but my pursuit of the proverbial thing that's never going to be quite done is a meaningless effort. To be in Jesus, we've already arrived. There's nowhere left to go. And it begins to change the whole fabric of your Christianity. I freely admit for the bulk of my Christian life, my prayer sort of went like this, Lord, come be a part of my life. Who's ever prayed prayers like that? Lord, come be a part of my life. Lord, I want you to be a part of, of what I'm doing. Be, be, a, be a part of my job. Be a part of my school. Be a part of my family. Be a part of my parenting. Those are good prayers. They're right prayers. God works in those prayers. God works those prayers. But something can begin to switch. Corey Asbury wrote a song a while back called All is for Your Glory. And one of the bridges to the song says this, Lord, catch me up. And there's a song. Catch me up in your story. All my life. What? For your glory. So as we begin to encounter Jesus, our, our, our prayers begin to change. We begin to frame up things a little bit differently when we begin to pray, Lord, don't just join me in my story. Lord, I want to join you in your story. Now that may sound like a kind of, well, what's, what's the difference? There's a big difference in those two things. If I'm asking him to join me in what I want to do, it's very different saying, Lord, I want to join in what you're doing. And it takes sort of the pressure off, doesn't it? It takes the pressure off of life. Says, Lord, you're moving, you're doing your thing, you're going to build your church, the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. I want to be in on what you're doing, and we can rest in that place, in this, you know, sovereignty of God. It's a beautiful place as we begin to encounter Jesus and realize he really wants to know us and show us himself. The journey oftentimes is like these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. You remember the story? You can read the account in Luke chapter 24, but the resurrection happened. You had a guy we don't know his name. The other guy's name was Cleopas, and they're walking to Emmaus. Well, who joins them on the road? Jesus. But their eyes were not able to see who he was. And they began to walk along together, and Jesus began to unpack revelation to them. And it comes down to the end of the journey, and Luke 24, 31 says this. It says, then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. And they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? You see, that's what we're being invited into. When we begin to encounter Jesus, he, he reveals himself to us. What happens? Our hearts begin to burn inside of us. Things begin to happen. He begins to open the scriptures to us. Verse 27 tells us that as he began to unpack this, this is what Jesus did for those two early followers. It says, then beginning with Moses and with all the scriptures, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all scriptures. 
Now, this is really critical. I want you to hone in on this, right? Jesus himself began to bring a spirit of revelation to the entire Old Testament all the way through, revealing himself through it all. You see? So, as we encounter the Lord, it's not in lieu of Scripture. It is how we understand Scripture. Jesus, by the Spirit, takes on the mission to open these things up to us that we might see clearly. That's why encountering the Lord emotionally, it's not just about emotion, it's about body, soul, and spirit, mentally, spiritually, physically, loving God with all of our what? Heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. As we begin to encounter the Lord in every area, it affects every other area. When we experience the love of Jesus, He's going to reveal the Word to us, and it's going to have an effect on all of us. Some people say, well, you're too emotional. Yes, because a lot of my decisions are made out of emotion. How about you? Right? I need Jesus in my emotions. I need Jesus in my brain, my cognition. I need Him influencing every aspect of my life. And He encounters us. And from this place of encountering Jesus and understanding the the amount and the volume of revelation He desires to bring into us, it is fresh and it is good and it is powerful. It is not static. It is not boring because your heart begins to burn inside of you when revelation begins to affect you. Reading the Bible doesn't become some arduous work. It becomes a place of joy in study. You find a place of joy in the place of prayer. It's not work and arduous and difficult. It's pursuing Him, and God encounters us in a beautiful way. And we frame up everything as we begin to pursue Him from that lens. This is not new information. I mean, Psalm 90 tells us that, Lord, You have been our dwelling place throughout generations. God says, I'm not something over here. He says, I am Your dwelling place. From the very beginning, God is inviting us into Him, and we dwell in Him relationally. And it is beautiful. I told you earlier, I've been married 29 years. Most of my life has been spent married. And over these last 29 years, I've learned a few things. I have learned it is possible to be in the state of marriage, but not enjoying closeness and intimacy. I have learned I can be married without closeness and intimacy. In the same way, you can be saved. You can be born again. Your name can be written in the Lamb's book of life. You can be justified by your faith while simultaneously not experiencing the closeness and intimacy with Jesus that he has for you. Now, we need to acknowledge that out of the gate, right? Just as I can be married and not enjoying closeness and intimacy, so you can have a walk with God that's minimal on experience, minimal on closeness, minimal on intimacy, but that's not the heart of the Father. He is calling us into more of that. It's not always easy, but it is possible. John lets us know that there's a thief, and he's coming to do essentially three things. What? To kill, steal, and destroy. Now, don't put, a, you know, don't put a period where God puts a comma. That verse goes on. What is he trying to kill, steal, and destroy? Jesus says, but I have come that you might have life. And what? Life more abundant. Life to the fullest. Have you ever thought one of the strategies of the enemy is just to, you know, get by, to have you just get by with just life? When he came to give us life, what? More abundantly? Many of us just try to get through this world surviving 
when we're actually called to thrive. There's a difference in surviving and thriving. Yeah, you can survive, but you're called to thrive, and it's the abundance that we can have in Jesus. This abundance we have in a relationship with him is not built on or predicated on any outward circumstance, on any momentary light affliction, on any trial, any any tribulation, any temptation. You can have joy unspeakable and full of glory in his presence that dwells within us. Now, we can give mental assent to that because most of us have been around the church long enough. Yeah, I agree with that, but we don't know it experientially. We know it just cognitively. A lot of our information has not converted to revelation, which becomes transformation. It stays locked in in this box of information, and it never moves to true transformation. I say what we do not need is more information. Because most of us know, most of us have only a fraction of revelation on the information that we already know. We need to confess our belief, Lord, I believe you are the way. And therefore, I'm going to pursue you. And we begin to take hold of it by faith. And we, we believe information, it becomes truth, and the truth sets us free. We shall know the truth, and the truth shall set us free. It doesn't say we shall know information, and the information shall set us free. We shall know truth. Well, Jesus said, I am the truth. So again, we have to reconcile the noun problem, the person, place, or thing. So truth does not become a list of rules and regulations. Truth is a person. And to know Jesus is to know revelation, is to know transformation. To know rules and regulation is a pathway to something entirely different. It's called religion. And he wants to set us free from that. So this morning, just the last couple of minutes, again, we're not going to get to all the notes. Feel free to consult them yourself. But I believe this, there are two destination disruptors, two destination disruptors. Jesus is the destination. But there are two things the enemy would like to use to kill, steal, and destroy the abundant life we've all been invited into. And the enemy, to give him credit, he's pretty good at what he does. Would you not agree? Right? I have to respect my enemy. He's pretty good at what he does. He's a student of human behavior. He's been doing it for a very long time, right? He's good at what he does, and I believe there are two, perhaps many, many more, but these are two I just want to highlight to us quickly today. One is religiosity, and one is worldliness. Religiosity and worldliness. What is religiosity? These are the man-made devices, the traditions of man that prevent true change by preserving the status quo. These promote self-righteousness, you know, a super spirituality bereft of relationship. That's what religion is after. That's one disruptor. The other disruptor is worldliness. This is the pursuit of the love of money, the temporary pursuits of life, listening to the voices of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. If you will, these are the two ditches on our journey with Jesus that we can end up with, that we need to stay out of these two ditches. Let me hit these very quickly. The first one is worldliness, the pursuits of things of the world. You know where we get this from? All the desires that we have, so many of them are, are there, and I probably even all of them are there as, as part of being in the image of God. These are right desires, but, we, but they're misdirected. They're misdirected desires. We aim to get these desires fulfilled in other ways than God intended us to get them. We've heard the stories, you've been sure long enough to understand that we got the God-shaped void in our life, and the only thing that can fill that God-shaped void is what? 
Jesus. He's the only one. So we spend lifetime of pursuing, trying to force something in to satisfy these longings and these cravings. It can be all the negative stuff, you know, sex, drugs, rock and roll, lying, cheating, all that. And you know what's funny? It can be positive things too. Some of the most people who are trying to find it in altruism or even philanthropy cannot ultimately satisfy what God can satisfy. It's not all negative flesh. It can also be positive flesh as well. It's seeking our security and our significance and our contentment in anything other than Jesus. That's all it is. When we begin to direct our desires toward other things to find security, to find significance, to find contentment, it always leaves us wanting, doesn't it? Have you ever been in that place? Come on, you bought the car, you love the car, you wax the car, you honor the car, two years later, you want another car. Right? That's not per se evil, but it's like I'm, I'm, I'm trying to scratch an itch with something that isn't going to scratch it. Have you ever tried to scratch an itch you just couldn't get to? Isn't it frustrating? You try on your hand, you find a wall, and you're trying to do this number. Finally, you resort, maybe I'm the only weird person in the room. I go and get a fork, and I try, I'm going to get down there and get that. In other words, we're trying to scratch these itches with things that aren't meant to satisfy them. And what happens is when there is a lack of experiencing His love and His Word and His power from revelation, what happens is we set ourselves up for vulnerability to attack of the things of the world. See, if we're operating with this mixture of, you know, eight parts religion, two parts experiencing the Lord, what happens is our desires are not being fully met in Him, and therefore the enemy is able to target us more strategically in areas and allure us away into worldliness. He's good at that. But the more we begin to encounter the Jesus I'm referring to, the Jesus Cleopas and that other disciple experienced on the road to Emmaus, when your heart begins to burn for him, when Jesus himself takes on the mission to begin revealing the word to you, things begin to change inside of you and your ability to flee youthful lust, your ability to say no to the things the world is offering you becomes much more fortified because you have tasted something different. When the world is offering you its wine, you say, no, thank you. I have this wine I'm drinking, and it's far better, and there's no hangover. You see what I'm saying? But if we are compromised, and we're in a diluted state, we are vulnerable to this kind of stuff to be led astray. We need to experience the love of God. That's why even here, as part of our faith family, we have such an emphasis on our children and our young people. Listen, how would your life have been different? Some of you have a testimony, right? How would your life have potentially been different if at seven year old, if at seven years old, you encountered the Holy Spirit powerfully and you couldn't get up? And the love of God shook your entire life at seven years old and you began to pursue Him. How might your life have been different if you encountered Jesus at seven years old? What decisions would you have made perhaps a little bit differently? I say, if you can reach a child, because there's no such thing as a junior Holy Spirit. Can I tell you, when you come to church and drop your kids off, they're not going downstairs to get junior Holy Spirit, while we get big adult Holy Spirit. He's the same Holy Spirit. And they have the ability and desire to encounter Jesus perhaps more easily and readily than even we as adults do. We want our kids to encounter Jesus powerfully because as they grow, when Satan comes and he looks for those opportune moments to strike, he's going to find way less of them. 
See, that's one of the tactics of Jesus, isn't it? When he left, when, he, when Satan left the Lord Jesus in the wilderness, he said, I'm going to return at a most opportune moment. The enemy knows our opportune moments. And he's good. that's when he's going to hit. When we're walking in the fullness of the Spirit, we can say no to this stuff and largely walk impervious to a lot of his tactics and schemes. This is our portion as sons and daughters of the Most High God. This isn't pie in the sky. This isn't on the wish list. This is real. And he's inviting us into this encounter with him. And I promise you guys, when you begin to taste and see that he is good, the other food the enemy is going to hold in front of you is just going to, eh. I would, I, would, I would rather have him. That's our portion. That's what he's called you to. That's what he's called me to. Worldliness is one of the chief destination disruptors. The second one, and we're not going to get into all this this morning. You can check out the notes, but it's religiosity. This is really a big one, and it's a little bit nebulous to define because many of us are older, and we grew up in a generation where religion didn't have a bad connotation to it. We even sang songs like, give me that old time religion, give me that old, remember that, right? What they were referring to was really something good and something right. But in in our understanding, there's another aspect of religiosity that's not good. It's It's an inappropriate devotion to rituals, traditions. It is something that should never be a characteristic of the followers of Jesus is religiosity. Remember, we begin to depend not so much on the proper noun of Jesus. We begin to depend on the place and the things in a substitution of knowing him. And this is an easy thing to fall into. And it's very deadly for our spirit and our soul to go down this track. In fact, you find that in Scripture, some of the hardest words Jesus ever spoke that that, that, that are recorded are confronting religion. And Pharisaism. That's when you read these words of Jesus, say, man, that came out of Jesus? Yeah, it came out of Jesus. Because he's not so happy with what religion does. We see as he condemns the Pharisees, these were men who were so self-righteous. They were so self-righteous. They fasted often. They prayed regularly. They went to church all the time. They tithed religiously. Even the tenth berry out of the garden, they're going to tithe it. They did these things. They were a religious people, and yet Jesus had his harshest words of condemnation against it. Why? Because the righteousness they were after was a righteousness that was all about them and not about God's glory. The Pharisees didn't look for God for their self-worth. They looked to themselves for their self-worth. They worship, their worship was like a mirror, not to reflect God's glory, but to reflect their own self-righteousness. And they would see themselves in the mirror of their own self-righteousness, and they would see themselves as righteous. It was not about the glory of God. And they were pursuing these things. So when you look about religion, I'll give you very quickly five, five disruptions from Religion, And I'm not going to read all this, but you can go check it out yourself. It's found in Matthew 23, verses 1 through 28. Harsh words of Jesus. This was our Lord's last public recorded message. And it's a scathing denunciation of false religion paraded as truth. Now, you know, somebody says, pay attention to some of the last things you say. This is some of the last things that Jesus said. And it was a denunciation of religion. And he was going after these things, simply these five things. Religion is very burdensome. 
Religion seeks to please men. Religion will hinder your faith. Religion only sees people's faults. Religion looks good on the outside. These are the things that will disrupt us in our walk. Very quickly, we'll go through it very fast. One, religion is very burdensome. Religion will weigh down your heart and it will rob you of true passion and joy. We see in this passage how the Pharisees gave people orders concerning observances. Look at this in verse uh, 4. It says, they tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. These rules and regulations and laws, they would crush people, and the religious rulers did nothing to help them. The truth be known, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law could not even keep these rules and regulations themselves, but they would expect the people to, and then offer any help. They thought to get to heaven, they had to keep all 613 commandments found in the Old Testament to somehow earn their way to heaven. And it just doesn't work, does it? Too many rules, too many laws will only lead to a loss of freedom and it will cause people to be enslaved and burdened and ultimately lead to a desire to run and escape or bury themselves in more religion. It does not set us free. It actually begins to bind us and become burdens to us. And it is a slippery slope. Religion, rules, regulations, requirements leaves no room for error. That's no room for God's grace. Religion builds on duty. Relationship builds on desire. Where we go from, where we start from, will determine where we end up. Religion wants your whole relationship with God to be built around duty, requirements. These are things I don't do. These are things I have to do. And we begin to operate out of duty. But no, the relationship we are offered into is one that's built on desire, right? Now, there are some duties associated with desire. I've been married 29 years. I get that. But ultimately, I desire her, right? There are duties that will fan the flame of desire, but it can't be duty alone. This is not what we are invited into. Religion is burdensome. Secondly, religion seeks to please men. Religion seeks to please men. Verses 5 through 7, everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide, their tassels and their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets. And the most important seats in the synagogue, they love to be greeted with respect in the marketplace and to be called rabbi by others. They're after to be seen in their religiosity. Success meant recognition by men and praise by men. They use their religiosity to attract attention from man, not to ultimately glorify God. They use their religious ornaments as displays of piety and righteousness, not for God but for others. They increased the size of their hymns. They did their phylacteries, whatnot. The little boxes they would wear, simplifying the law, being in connection to the fulfillment of Deuteronomy chapter 6. They did all this as what? For public recognition. Who's ever been to a church one time? I remember years ago going to a church and I sat down on a specific pew and I remember somebody said, you need to move, this is my pew. Really? I mean, there are like many open pews. This is my pew. And I just like, how, how was I to know that? And then they pointed to the little bronze plaque that was affixed to the edge of the pew that had their family name on it. And they said, oh, no, this is, this is our pew. Our family bought this pew. This is mine. 
So praise God. I'm going somewhere else. So I found another pew with another plaque, but that person wasn't there that day, so I was safe. <laughs> right? These, this, is, this, is, this is where all this stuff begins to come from, isn't it? Where we begin to have these devices and whatnot. I like this passage here. Galatians 1.10, I now trying to win the approval of human beings. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Man, when I read this years ago, it was so profoundly convicting for me because I was the guy who confused being called a blessed are the peacemakers, but I was a people pleaser. And I learned that peacemaker and people pleaser kind of look the same, but they're really not. They're like ugly kissing cousins, right? That doesn't work. I was a people pleaser, not a peacemaker. When I read that verse, it was so convicting for me because I began to analyze myself. Oh, Lord, you're right. There's so many instances I'm trying to please the people. If I'm trying to do that, I cannot be a servant of Christ because you cannot follow Jesus and please people simultaneously. People may not always going to go along with you. Real quickly, I promise, five more minutes, max. Three, religion will hinder your faith. Number three, religion will hinder your faith. Matthew 23, 13. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. I believe one of the enemy's greatest traps are when people are searching for the kingdom of God and we throw religion at them. Some of you have had that done to you before. You've gone to churches and you were seeking God and what you got was a big helping of religion. Don't do this and start doing this. They gave you rules and regulations and they didn't give you Jesus. Perhaps because somebody gave them rules and regulations because they were never given Jesus and so forth and so on. And Jesus has come to set us free from these stuff. Religion is an impossible yoke to carry. You can't do it. When you try to accomplish something that God never meant you to accomplish, you become totally burned out, mean, critical, and patient. Who's ever been there? Trying to do something because a requirement or a regulation or an expectation was laid upon you by somebody else and not by the Lord himself or by the Spirit of Jesus. It will wear you out. You can get so turned around here. Listen, you can get so confused here. I was for years. You can get so turned around. The Pharisees got so turned around to this that when God showed up, they thought he was the devil. That's what religion does. Religion will confuse you and contort things and become a blinder to you that God shows up and you think he's the devil. This is the condition that the Pharisees ended up in. Jesus was right in front of them. And they said, it's by Beelzebub you are casting out the devil. So religion is nothing to trifle with. He said, Lord, set us free from religion. Number four, quickly. Religion only sees people's faults. This is a big one. Religion in us only will see people's faults. The religious leaders on one occasion... We're actually coming down hard on the disciples of Jesus because they didn't wash their hands when they were eating certain foods. Jesus rebukes them in Mark 7. Yes, there are biblical standards, and we don't make light of that, but Jesus works from the inside out, not the outside in. Projecting a, a, a personal conviction on somebody else is the beginning of a religious spirit that you can operate in. Every one of us, should have profound, deep convictions. 
But the moment I take my deep conviction and I attempt to export it out onto somebody else, I am taking what God has done on the inside and I'm trying to shove it down somebody from the outside to go in. And the danger is they will take on that expectation, they'll take on that regulation, and they will begin living in that place, not from desire, but from duty, and it will set us on a path of not enjoying the abundant life Jesus has called us to. See, the Holy Spirit is all about holy. People say, I want power. Well, to get power, you got to get the Spirit. To get the Spirit, you got to have to desire holiness. Holy Spirit power. Power comes from the Spirit. The Spirit brings about holiness. That's going to happen, but it can't be from a spirit of religion. It's dangerous. Last thing. Religion looks good on the outside. Hmm. We find in Matthew 23, 25, and I won't read through the whole thing, but this is the passage where he's talking about you can look good on the outside, but bad on the inside. You know, you're a whitewashed tomb full of dead men's bones. I remember going to Israel a few years ago, and one of the things that really impacted me a lot was um, going to see the Dead Sea. Anybody ever been to Israel and seen the Dead Sea? I don't know what I was thinking. I was thinking, well, Dead Sea is going to be like a swamp. I was thinking like swampland, these nasty smells and dead things laying around because it's the Dead Sea. So I expect to see dead. So uh, this is, so I was, ready to, I was ready for something really, really swampy. So we're driving down the street a long way, and all of a sudden I see the Dead Sea. And it is absolutely beautiful. I mean, it is as blue as any Caribbean water you've ever seen. Some of the beaches are as white and beautiful as you've ever seen. And I was like, man, this is amazing. It wasn't what I was expecting. So I was walking up, looking at this water. I said, this is like gorgeous. This is like beautiful. This was not what I was expecting. And I turned to the guy next to me and said, man, I was thinking this was going to be like this smelly bunch of rotten stuff. He said, it's the Dead Sea. Even dead things or dying things can't live here. It's the absence of all life. Because even bacteria that smells bad is still alive, is it not? So it is the absence, what, of all life, all bacteria. So there was nothing to smell at all, not good or bad, but it was beautiful. And it reminds me of Paul in 2 Timothy is writing and warning the church of the end of the age that it's possible to have a form of godliness but deny the power thereof. It's possible to look good It's possible to have everything ordered, to have all the right talk, all the right vocabulary, but not have the relationship Jesus has called us into. It's possible to be a dead sea and not one that's living and teeming with life. Can I invite you to stand? The invitation is there for all the sons and daughters of the Lord. The question we all have to ask ourselves is, do we really believe it? (laughs) It's God's word. We must. We must choose to believe it. I believe there's an abundant life. The question for us is this. Are you going to be satisfied just to survive? Or would you rather thrive? Would you rather thrive? Jesus wants to give each and every one of us that. How do you get there? I, I don't know. I can't give you a formula. All I can say is go for it. (laughs) Psalm 23 says that he has prepared a table for us in the presence of our enemies. That means he has made a table in the midst of every negative circumstance, every situation, every financial problem, everything that's not going your way. 
everything circumstantially in your life or my life that's out of whack. He said, I am putting a table right slap dab in the middle of it that you can eat from it regardless of what's going on around you. And from that place of feasting and dining will come love and joy and peace that you've ever known. Jesus would speak to the church and say, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If you open the door, I will come in and I will sit and I will eat with you. It's the invitation. I don't know what it looks like for you, right? We're going to pray right now, but I pray that you find yourself at home and pray until you pray. Go to the prayer room, find a spot. Lord, I'm not going to leave here. I'm going to stay long enough until I know you revealed this to me. And perhaps your prayer could be a bit like mine. Lord, show me what's wrong. Where are the disruptors in walking into destination, Jesus? Am I satisfying these desires on worldly things and not on you? Is my security, my contentment, my significance coming from anything but you, Lord? Or have I, have, have I allowed too much of a mixture of religion to get in there? And I'm defining my whole Christian life by things that I don't do, things that I'm supposed to do, amount of relationship. So, Father, I thank you for your sons and daughters in this room. I pray, Lord, as we leave this place, Lord, it would be like us walking with you, Cleopas and that disciple, that they would come to that revelation that you've been with them all the time. You've been walking with them all the time, and they didn't even know it. <laughs> and that, Lord, we would all come to that revelation that, oh, you, you've been with us, Lord. You're everything. We would echo with Moses from Psalm 90, oh, Lord, you have been my dwelling place from generations to generations. And we would enter in more deeply and more fully to that, Lord, in our satisfaction will go so deep inside of us that as the song says that we can turn our eyes upon you, Jesus, and look full in your wonderful face. And the things of all this world truly will grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and the light of your grace. So bless each one here. Speak to our hearts, God, in the strong and mighty name of Jesus. And all of us said together, amen.